Hello, this bonus episode today is actually an interview where I was on someone else's podcast, Amelia Ruby's The Off The Grid podcast. And I definitely recommend checking out that podcast if you are a small business owner and wanting to be less on social media. That's what it's all about is having a thriving business being off social media. And Amelia very generously put together just the interview without her intro, outro, or ads so that I could share it with you because I know that a lot of ADHD people either have been an entrepreneur at some point or hope to be at some point to be able to build something that works better for their brain than most of the corporate world. So here's the episode for you. And I'm not using my regular intro, outro, sorry, autistic folks who love hearing the same thing every time, but it just didn't really fit. The thing that I'll be talking about near the end of the episode, and that I'll also just have a quick blurb about at the end, is a new thing I just launched called Like Your Brain. And that link is in the show notes because our first welcome call is today at 2 p.m. Eastern. So if you're listening to this, it's probably coming right up. There's also one on Monday. So again, all that information's in the show notes, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Hi, Mattia. Welcome to Off the Grid. I'm so glad to have you. Yay. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. I love this podcast. Yes, this podcast loves you. <laughs> so we've worked together in a few capacities. You've come to the refresh. We've done some coaching. You're a member of the Lifestyle Business League. And I feel like through those shared experiences, I've really gotten to witness and support the ways that you have built a really multifaceted career as a composer, as a coach, with so many modalities that you're entrained in and use in your work. And something I really admire about you is the way that you create space for both your artistic creative practice and your business work or coaching work of supporting other people. And so I'm really happy to have you here today because you're someone that I look to as having a career that does manage to do both, as they say. <laughs> And I also think this is a really exciting conversation for us to have because if I'm just being really honest about my privilege, like a lot of my success in business does come from me being a pretty neurotypical person with very high executive functioning. And a lot of things that I know sometimes I'll say on the podcast, like, we'll just do this, this and that. I'm sure people hear and they're like, Amelia, that would take me years if I could even focus long enough to get that one thing you just presented as a very easy option done. So in addition to being excited to have you here because I admire your business, I'm excited to have you here to speak to your experience as an ADHD business owner and the host of ADHD Flourishing, your new podcast that has already found a growing, excited audience. So all of that to say, welcome again. I'm so happy to have you. And I thought I would open us up by asking you a little bit more about this term ADHD, which may or may not be familiar to listeners. So could you talk a little bit about what does ADHD mean and how you've come to understand it in your own life and work? Yeah. So you'll probably see this somewhere in the show notes, but ADHD is ADHD with a lowercase u between the first A and D. So, <laughs> and, and what that's getting at is combined autism and ADHD. So 
Actually, up until the 90s, you could not be diagnosed with both in the US. They were considered mutually exclusive. We are now reaching almost the opposite of that, where we're realizing that up to 60% of people with ADHD are autistic and up to 80% of autistic people have ADHD. So there's a huge overlap. I won't be surprised if in our lifetimes, there's actually either a new term or like something else that we're like, oh, there actually is this third thing. So I think of the combined neurotype as different than the experience of just being an autistic person or just being an ADHD person, because my entire life experience has been these two somewhat opposing needs and sort of forces in my brain. For example, just as a really simple one, my autistic part really, really wants routine desperately and loves it and would be very happy to do exactly the same thing for the first like two hours of every day, every day. And my ADHD part of my brain is like, ha, nice routine you've got there. Let's throw it out the window every you know six weeks. And a lot of ADHD people will talk about this, that they can like have a routine, have a habit going. And then when it's gone, it's gone forever. Like you can't get it back. And it's this really frustrating experience. So something like that, if you go to sort of a traditional mental health setting and you're describing that, there's a lot of just do it language. It's like, well, can't you just start the habit again? You're like, No, I literally can't. So one of the ways I describe it for ADHD people is basically if it has felt like your whole life that no advice works for you, everything everybody suggests does not work. And not only does it not work, but you know yourself well enough to look at it and be like, I'm not even going to bother trying that at this point. By the time you've reached adulthood, you're just like, you know what? I know that's not going to work for me. So there can be this really high level of frustration where, you know, there's skill and capacity and strengths, but sort of a lot of the traditional pathways and advice just don't work. So there's also like a really high level of frustration, I think, especially day to day. Yeah, I can completely imagine this. And it also then makes sense to me, something you said before we started recording, which is that many ADHD folks then go on to start their own businesses almost perhaps out of that frustration. But can you share a little bit more? Like, why do you see so many people with ADHD start businesses? Yeah, I mean, honestly, a lot of it's out of necessity. There's also, so both ADHD and autism can be described as interest-based nervous systems that we only, not only only want to do things that are interesting, but essentially only can garner the executive function, the ability to get going if the thing is interesting. So There's also, I have what I call a bad habit of turning my hobbies into businesses, (laughs) (laughs) just like getting good at something, doing it professionally a little bit, and then being like, whoops, I'm actually good at this and I'm actually getting paid well. So sure, I'll do it. And then ending up with, you know, it doesn't necessarily work out long term. So having this very sort of cyclical working on something. And then also just the necessity of not doing well in a traditional sort of corporate career setting. And that I think, so ADHD is more kind of well understood and accepted in certain ways. I think if you are in a work setting and you say, hey, I have ADHD and I need this accommodation, there's a little bit more understanding around that. And then for autistic people, a lot of what happens is these really subtle social problems that are technically solvable, but if the people that are in charge of you don't want to solve them, it's very easy to fire you because of them. So a lot of autistic people have been fired or sort of pushed out or, I mean, I I honestly think a lot of it's just bullying as well. Um, I think a lot of autistic people have been bullied as adults. So if you're consistently having that happening and you're in sort of boring, you know, not necessarily well-paid jobs because a lot of ADHD people also have, you know, kind of a weird 
job history. I've done a lot of different careers. So I haven't like grown one career, you know, to a large degree. It can be really hard to find work where you actually fit in and you're being paid well and you actually like it and it's interesting long term. I think that that's a a very hard bar to meet. So it's a lot easier to just go do your own thing. A lot of us have really cyclical energy as well. So we'll have these like, we can work really hard for a bit and then we need a lot of rest. And that is just not what jobs and sort of productivity culture are geared toward at all. There's no space for the resting part. They just want you to be max productivity all the time. And our bodies just don't work like that. Yeah. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share a little bit more of your personal journey. You know, I've mentioned that you do many things and you've mentioned that you've had kind of many careers, but how has this played out in your own experience and, you know, the business that you run now? What are ways that you have crafted it to suit your cyclical energy, your desire to have routine and then never do it again, or your need to have routine and never do it again? How does that play into kind of your career path and your current business? That's a really good, really big question. I will, (laughs) I will try to hold on to it in my mind and create some kind of actual narrative. Okay. I'll actually say something recently that I've been really proud of myself about, which is I think I've finally reached a point where I'm not reaching to overwork as a sort of primary coping mechanism for my life. Like I've always been an overworker and I also have physical disabilities. And that's actually a thing I want to mention because a lot of ADHD people also have really commonly comorbid things. So like I have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, there's POTS, there's mast cell stuff. And a lot of these things are just, they, they kind of all go together in a big clump basically. So I've had some like autoimmune stuff and some like just immune issues over my life, had asthma and, and migraines and like all these things have made work difficult. And it also means, and and then I think in part because of the ADHD or just like executive function problems, when my body and brain are working, I'm like, I have to use this. I have to like work as hard as I can, as long as I can, because I don't know when my body or brain are going to just stop working again. So it's been this very cyclical overworking and then burnout, including in my business. So this isn't just, you know, jobs, but something that I've really worked on in the last few years, and I feel like finally really achieved in some real way is not just forcing myself not to work nights and weekends, although that was a step, but for real, like disconnecting, completing the stress cycle, basically not having little mini burnouts every weekend where I just like needed to do nothing all weekend. And what I've realized is that cyclical energy thing is you know, on a given day. And I'll again, give a recent example. My brain was doing some weird stuff this week. So I was like, you know what? I'm not going to try to focus on my work. I'm just going to have a TV show on in the background. And then I'm going to make a list of things I can do while that's happening. So I'm going to pull all the things from my list that are not my like hardest deep work tasks, but like things I can do while I'm a little bit distracted. And that let me actually get through some stuff. So that's kind of like (laughs) that current picture, but part of what it took to get there and part of the reason it was so hard to get there is that we have all these messages from the neuronormative culture about this is how you should work. This is how you should focus. This is what you should be able to produce in a certain amount of time or by a certain age, you should have met these metrics, all this stuff. And I think a lot of the shame around that, it's exhausting to experience. So I would 
be tired and exhausted from just thinking about my problems and not actually doing anything. (laughs) That's like, yeah, so extra frustrating. And something I'll kind of add a lot of neurodivergent brains actually, and this includes OCD as well. There's syncing issues between different areas of the brain when they look at brain imaging. So it's actually a lot of times over syncing. So parts of the brain are sort of like more connected than they should be. So they should be able to detach. But like, for example, in OCD, the motor areas of the brain are activated when you think. So where someone without OCD just has a thought and you're like, oh, that's whatever. For somebody with OCD, your brain is like, I have to take action. I have to do something right now. And there are similar things in autism and ADHD. So a lot of, I think what we've been told about, you should just be able to do this. It's like, no, if your brain is actually functioning differently, if it's actually doing different things, I don't know. I guess some people do say to addicts, just stop it. But we know that that's not reasonable. (laughs) It's not real. (laughs) Because there are actual things going on in the brain. Right. So anyway, that's just kind of this background thing that like the more I've learned about the brain, the more I've been able to actually accept that I am never, ever going to be able to behave in a neuronormative way or run my business in a neuronormative way. So I have to have space for things to be different. And I know I'm not really answering your question about the how, but (laughs) I feel like this sort of like big picture, sort of like how I've gotten here is really important because it's not just, oh, I did these things because those things might not work for another ADHD person anyway, like the exact little steps I took to get there. But I think having a sense of it is possible to enjoy your day-to-day work. It's possible to not overwork. It's possible to make enough money working essentially 20 hours a week. I'd probably working closer to 30 hours a week at this point with the podcast and everything, but not every week. Some weeks I work a lot less and there's space in my calendar and in my year to be able to get the rest that my brain needs. Because I, if I push myself sort of maximally, then I burn out and lose a few months anyway. Yeah. I think hearing you speak of kind of the seasonal piece and some of these ways you've designed your business, for me, it like brings social media into the mix. So I'm curious, has your, as I've heard you put it, like on again, off again relationship with social media affected your mental health, your business, your ability to kind of take care of yourself in these ways? Yeah. So I was thinking about it and I was realizing, oh my God, I've been on Facebook for almost 20 years because I got on it. 2004, because I was in one of the schools that let you do that pretty early on. And I wasn't, I mean, people weren't really using it that much then. This was like more like 2007 when people were using it a little bit more actively. There were more people on there. I was then off of Facebook for almost four years and actually came back not long after the pandemic started because I was like, oh, I I don't have a way to like keep track of my friends because I can't do the stuff I would normally do. And that's just, I know that's just one social media, but I was like, wow, 20 years how much time have I put in there? I don't even want to know, but, (laughs) and how much do they know about me? Yikes. Also knowing that you've been on social media for a very long time, like many of us millennials or elder millennials, how have you brought your like cyclical approach to social media? And what are the ways that you've kind of worked with Instagram or other social platforms in the past that have really like suited your ADHD? Yeah, I think it's definitely been cyclical, both in terms, I mean, I've taken breaks from all the social media I've been on, I guess, except threads technically, because it's very new. And I did join that funnily enough, 
being on threads and it being so chill and not having ads was part of what made me realize, oh my God, fuck meta, I'm out. <laughs> like, <laughs> mm-hmm. But basically it was so chill and there were no ads and I had it in dark mode and it was just text and occasionally pictures, but it wasn't giving me those dopamine hits and experiencing, oh, this is what social media could be if they weren't trying to mine me for every bit of data that I have to sell me cheap crap that's going to end up in the ocean. I have strong opinions about it. Yeah. (laughs) But basically having that experience recently kind of reminded me, oh, right. When I've left social media in the past, it's been essentially because I'm experiencing as what feels like an addiction. And I know it's not quite the same. I don't want to you know, diminish anybody's experience of full drug addiction or something where it's like a really life ruining experience. And at the same time, literally Instagram and Facebook have done experiments on us to see if they can make us depressed and they could, and they did. So I don't, I don't want to go too intense on that side, but you know, if you want to learn about this stuff, this information's out there. And I kind of know that in the back of my mind, which is why I kind of used to bad relationship analogy that it's kind of like, yeah, I know. I know they're doing bad things. I know they're manipulating me, but whatever. I'm, you know, I'm getting these other things out of it. And a lot of what was kind of working for me and where that cyclical energy was coming in is, hey, if I had a launch in my business, I could post on social media and I could get engagement and I would feel good about that. But for example, I've had videos go viral like a million views on several different platforms. And I don't think I got any direct sales out of those. So I think a lot of what we're searching for in social media as a business owner is essentially eyes on it. So virality or just, you know, just generally an engaged audience. I had a lot of engagement, but it wasn't necessarily leading to sales. And so the amount of time I was putting in, like I was calculating the time I was putting in to how many sales I was getting directly from social media and just going like, this doesn't make sense. Even if I'm enjoying this, and even if cyclically I have the energy to put into this, even if I'm getting something out of it, it's not really what I'm trying to do. And because you don't own the space, like I know so many small business owners who've had their account turned off for no reason. Like I have somebody who I would say has a business very similar to mine and is ADHD, whose Instagram was deleted. She still doesn't know why. She never got an answer for them. She never had a formal complaint against her account that she knows of. And it's just gone. And all that data is gone because she hadn't saved it. So something like that happening, you know, to someone close to me, I was just like, wow, (laughs) they don't care about me. And I could be very, very screwed. And all that effort that I put in would just be gone forever. So again, I I don't feel like I'm making like a very (laughs) single cogent answer, but I've had these real, like, honestly, I've had a cyclical approach, like emotionally, I've had a cyclical connection with social media where sometimes I'm like, this is working for me again, early in the pandemic. I was just like, yeah, this is, this is really giving me something that I can't get elsewhere. And I appreciated that. And I just don't like feeling manipulated (laughs) and, and feeling like I'm putting in so much time and heart and authenticity and vulnerability and like so much of myself. And I don't own that at all. And it can just be taken away at any time. And nobody thinks that's going to happen to them until it does. Because these social media platforms can at any time remove your account. That's what the terms and conditions we all agree to say. They don't have to even give us a reason. You have no right to your account outside of them granting you access to it. And what's coming up for me as you say this is that that's a really precarious position to be in as a business owner because it then can be a direct threat to your livelihood financially. 
I also then, in the context of this conversation, think of it as like, especially for disabled and neurodivergent folks, it can really be precarious for your community. Like if the only place that you're accessing community is on social media platforms and your access to those platforms can be taken away at any time, then you could find yourself completely locked out of your community and completely isolated. And that makes me feel panic, honestly, (laughs) when I even say it. I can feel my heart rate rising as I just try to imagine you know, we don't think of it this way when we're just like hanging out on Instagram or TikTok and like chatting with our friends and feeling really connected. But at any time, like if we don't take those connections off of those platforms, we could lose them in any moment. Yeah. I have somebody on Facebook who's disabled and a friend who I, I think I'm friends with four or five of their accounts at this point because Facebook keeps locking them out of their account and then they make a new one. And it just like keeps happening and they have to go find the groups and disability groups for like, say, my local disability, I'm in Philadelphia. So like my local, Philly disabled queers group is very, very helpful and supportive for me when I need a really specific thing. When I'm like, hey, what's the law here around this? Like, does anybody know what the answer to this question is? It's so helpful. And also I back up my data on social media periodically just because I know it could go away. So I I have access to some of it. But if I didn't do that and all of my accounts were just deleted with all of that information, I think I would be incredibly incredibly like just beyond distressed because there's stuff on there that I've have like 20 years of information that I would never be able to access again. So yeah, I mean that's just again one thing that can go wrong. But then on the other hand, if that never happens and you're just on there forever. <laughs> and I was thinking about like lately how I've actually been having trouble balancing my creative time and my business time. Well, I mean, my creative time sometimes is business time. They're not mutually exclusive, but I was like, you know, I really like, I would feel really good if I had a really consistent 10 hours a week of creative time. And I was like, I bet there are weeks where I'm spending at least 10 hours on social media easily. And honestly, probably more than that. You know, if you look at your phone data and I was just like, if I just dropped that and that was not a part of my life, what could I do with 10 hours a week for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. It's kind of shocking. (laughs) And I say, as a music teacher, I'm like, you could get really good at an instrument in 10 hours a week. (laughs) Really good. I could never. That's not true. (laughs) You could become okay at an instrument in 10 hours a week. The truth. No, that's the truth. (laughs) And the other thing I really think about is, so it's not just the time for me. It's also because I have taken these long breaks from social media I'm about to again, (laughs) it's mental space. Like it's not just time. I could be not looking at my phone or not looking at an app, but thinking about, oh, I just took this picture and this would be really great for this type of post. Or, you know, like thinking about my life or viewing my life through a lens of consumability and sales. And part of, for me, being able to disconnect from my business and not just having it be constant, constant drain on my resources is not thinking about marketing all of the time and having my marketing be a distinct, like an activity or more like a job that I'm doing, as opposed to how I'm viewing my entire life all the time. And as an artist, it's really important to have mental space because boredom and just sort of like existing and just openly taking in information, but not in that dopamine smashing kind of way (laughs) is a crucial part of the creative process. And if we don't have that, I mean, that's part of why I haven't been composing as much lately is because I've kind of let my work fill up a lot of that space again in my life. So even though I'm not quote overworking in terms of hours, I think in terms of mental energy, I am letting it take up 
pretty much all of my mental energy at this point. When you leave social media, you do get a lot of time back. I definitely experienced that. And then you choose how you want to channel and use it. And I wrote pretty vulnerably to my personal mailing list earlier this year about how I realized that I was still spending a ton of time on my phone, even without social media. And I kind of walked through, I was like, oh yeah, before I just got on Instagram, but now I like play this weird game and I like do my Duolingo every day, spend a lot of time in Letterboxd staring at other people's movie reviews. Sometimes I'm like, this is actually a nourishing, fulfilling activity. And sometimes I'm just craving something to scroll. For me, that actually can be really relaxing. So my go-to game that I've played, I think 1500 hours in Steam at this point is Train Valley 2. I finished Train Valley 1 very quickly and then I got Train Valley 2 and I've been playing it because there's like user levels on it. And I love to just sit and play my train game and then listen to something, often a podcast or a book or something. But like that to me is relaxing. It's refreshing. It like resets me in a way that scrolling social media absolutely does not. Because I mean, especially meta, part of what they do intentionally is show you a really sad or upsetting post and then a really happy post because the back and forth of that emotional rubber band effect keeps people there. So it gives me this kind of emotional whiplash that is not refreshing, even if it looks from the outside like I'm doing the same thing, just kind of sitting and doing something chill. Yeah, I think that's a really important reflection. And what it's reminding me of is the way that play has been a really important part of human experience, kind of for as long as humans have been humaning. And I think that games are a very fun way to play. But I want to distinguish that from the way that we talk about things being gamified now, and how there are now all of these tasks we might do or apps we might go to, where like our experience is kind of They talk about it like it's being turned into a game, but not for the sake of play, for the sake of profit. And I think that that's a really important distinction you're making. Like you can go play Train Valley 2. And what you're getting from that is this sense of play, exploration. To me, play is kind of like thinking without like an outcome in mind. Your brain just gets to kind of like explore and do things without some specific goal. And that's really healthy for our brains and for our, I think, like spirits. (laughs) our creative practice as well. But that's so different than exactly what you're describing on Instagram, where we may go to Instagram without any sort of outcome or concept in mind. But Instagram has a very clear desire, which is to keep us there looking at ads and buying things. And so I think the platforms preclude play. You can't play there because of how they're designed. Whereas there are plenty of games we can still go play. Yeah. And Part of, again, just because I got, you know, really interested in neuroscience and what is happening in the brain, like play is crucial to our mental well-being. And if we don't get it, this is just a phrase that stuck out to me in the literature at one point. It was basically like the only children who don't play are severely depressed. And I I think that's true for adults too, right? Or just don't have the space for it, right? Because it kind of gets edged out in our life. But the other thing I think that's really important for autistic and ADHD people to know is that engaging in our special interests or play or basically that sort of like open-ended, curious exploration of something that we are enjoying just for its own sake is one of the keys to getting out of burnout. And so if that's true, In my mind, I mean, I don't know if this is scientifically validated, but my assumption is it's also probably useful for preventing burnout and helping us with that stress cycle on the shorter term. If we can just kind of be getting our brains into that kind of open lens space 
essentially. That's kind of my bias, you know, as a hypnotist basically is that these, like we need these sort of open lenses sometimes in our life to be able to kind of zoom out. And it's one of the things that play does. And it's one of the things that even though it, when you're engaging in a special interest and really, you know, focused on learning, it feels very sort of down and in focused, but really you have this kind of curious, like, Ooh, that's what's that term. I'm going to go follow that. So there's kind of this rabbit hole effect that's very playful and very curious and very open. And it's so, so helpful to the brain. I kind of can't overstate how important that is for neurodivergent people. Yeah. Thinking about play, we've talked about the games we like to play, but I'm curious, what are other ways that you bring play into your work and your life? Yeah. I mean, one thing for me is playing with animals is just deeply, deeply nourishing and centering to me. So my old man kitty that I had for a long time died a year ago. We just got a kitten and that period without a cat in the house. Cause I'd had him for 15 years. I was just like, Oh my God, the cat was meeting 30% of my touch and social needs. <laughs> like so much of my, I was just like, Oh, okay. I don't have that. Now I have to actually go seek this out. It's not just built into my life. Certainly animals. I mean, nature, this is broad, but like, I like, you know, walking when I can and like hiking when I can, um, if my body's up for it, doing things that are just kind of, again, that sort of open-ended, no purpose, just sort of existing, playing, looking at things that are interesting to me. I love museums, going to like art museums. I consider that to be kind of playful and nourishing my creative side. And then I also do this thing I call triple stimming, uh, which is <laughs> doing something like, it's usually playing a game, listening to an audiobook, and then being under a weighted blanket. And if my brain really needs just a lot of extra stimulation, I will sometimes add a TV show onto that. So I will actually have like a TV show and a book going at once. I know this sounds absolutely ridiculous, but sometimes my brain is just like, give it to me. <laughs> I just need to like, I just give myself all the stimulation. I usually only need that for like 20 or 30 minutes. And then I'm like, okay, I can remove one of these things. But sometimes my brain is just like, I just need a lot. And that is much healthier than cocaine, I assume. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've never tried cocaine, but I think that that's probably a similar vibe. <laughs> you might think that that sounds like a lot, but I literally all the time I say to my partner, I'm like, I wish I could just watch a show, read a book and listen to a podcast at the same time. Sometimes all I desire is to be doing all of that at once. Try it. <laughs> well, that's the thing is it's an interesting experience. So the thing that I did actually at one point when I was a teenager, just to see if I could, was I read a book and listened to a book at the same time to see if I could actually comprehend both. I could. So that's the other thing about certain brains is I have more neural connections than a neurotypical person. I literally have more nerve endings and I have more neural activity. My brain is producing more information at rest and I am taking more information in consciously that for other people would be unconscious information. So is that overwhelming? And do I get overwhelmed easily? Yes. But also my brain could do some pretty cool things. And to bring that back to the business ownership stuff, you know, if I give my brain what it needs, and the support that it needs, my brain can produce amazingly creative solutions. And I hear over and over, for example, from clients that I noticed something or said something that their you know therapist of five years hadn't noticed. And I'm like, oh, to me, this seems like an obvious connection between these two events or these two things that you're talking about, right? These seem connected, but I have a pattern-seeking brain. And so that's kind of the strengths side of it that I think if you build a business doing things that you enjoy and that are interesting and that fit within your energy, 
you can actually do really well with that. You don't have to do the boring stuff that you hate that can be put off onto other people or eliminated completely, which is a lot of what I do is just like, I just don't do those things, you know? And I think that's part of why my energy is so much better these days because yeah, I'm working more, but it's all work that's aligned with my ability. And I'm not trying to make myself get better at the things that I am simply not good at, like tiny admin follow through. That's never going to be my strength. And that's okay. Yeah, exactly. So on that topic, I know that one of the things you've really taken up in your business that has really suited you is podcasting. And I wanted to invite you to share a little bit about your show, ADHD Flourishing. I know you had a show before that as well, I think called The Longer Road. How has podcasting suited your brain and your business? Yeah. So I wanted to start a podcast for a long time. I remember very vividly the first few episodes I recorded of The Longer Road, literally in my closet. And I felt really nervous, really vulnerable. And I was like, oh, this is such a, it's such a weird format because you're talking and it's almost like you're having a one-sided conversation, which is a pretty autistic thing to do, I guess. Info dumping is kind of, (laughs) it's a thing that I do. So I'm recording it and I'm putting it out there. And the first podcast, which technically still exists, but I'm I'm not making myself put an episode out every week on both podcasts because my brain just can't commit to that. And one of the things that I noticed, and it's actually one of the things that's made it easier to take a step away from social media is a lot of my thoughts and interests are long form or suited to long form content. Even on say a Facebook post, which could be quite long, I would go there and I would just be like, nope, I, I want more context for this. I want to be able to give context and give links and kind of a podcast is so great for being able to put quite a bit of information into like 20 minutes. So I was finding that that was working really well. And the longer road is the intention behind it was basically, I was looking for podcasts about a bunch of intersectional identities and not finding them. So I was finding, oh, here's, you know, here's one for disability. Here's one for being queer, you know, here's one for being ADHD, but like not one that was all of my identities. So that was always my intention with guests was like, okay, here are all of your identities. What's interesting to you? What are you enjoying? What's giving you joy? And so one of the other interesting things is, so the ADHD flourishing has been going for three months and it already has as many listens as the first podcast has gotten in the last two years, almost. So (laughs) growing fast, it's growing fast. I think having a really clear title because people search, you know, ADHD as a term, I think it's really clear what that title is. The longer road. I mean, that could be about cars for all anybody knows, right? (laughs) (laughs) True. We're almost at 8,000 listens total in a few months, which feels like a lot relatively. So it's been by far, I would say the best sales tool I've had besides a newsletter. So to connect that back to kind of the social media thing, it's like social media, I could, you know, I could post about something five times and people might sign up for it. And with the podcast, people are, I'm not saying, oh, we should just start a podcast. Like it's not a, it's not a small endeavor, especially to keep it going for a long time. But for my brain, the audio is so much easier than video. So recording audio is a lot easier for me. It's pretty easy for me to just pick a topic and talk for 15 minutes. Like I can do that. And then people are committing to listening to me for a bit. I think they get a better sense of who I am. They get a really good sense of how my brain works when they hear me go on tangents. (laughs) It's like, okay, this is how their brain organizes information. And so I think people hear that. It's not just the information. It's like who I am and how I'm presenting it. I'm actually have lost count of how many people have reached out about ADHD flourishing and said, this is 
the first time I've heard my life experience described ever. And I've had one person say like, this is my favorite episode of any podcast I've ever heard. Right. So like really strong reactions, <laughs> but it's also because there's just not a lot out there. And it's part of why I started it is I was looking for ADHD podcasts and I only found two with that in the title. So I was like, okay, I know this is a need. I know a lot of people are interested and, and exploring this, whether or not they end up seeking or finding a diagnosis. Like a lot of people are like, this kind of sounds like me. This is useful to me. And so that's also part of kind of the message of the podcast is like, if you find this useful and you want to be here, you're welcome here. You don't need the label because a lot of people aren't going to take the label, but they find the information useful. Yeah, certainly. I think that it's just exciting to hear how much the show is resonating with people. I mean, I think that's what I'm hearing, what you're saying. It's like, you've really found this point of connection and you are able to cultivate resonance around this experience. And I think that, you know, to put on my podcast studio founder hat for a moment, <laughs> what you just described of searching for shows around this topic, realizing that there aren't many and then creating one is such a wonderful way to make a podcast and grow an audience. Not that your stated goal was like, I'm doing this, you know, super strategically from audience growth, but you just noticed there was this thing that no one was making. And if you want it, probably other people want it. Most people don't come to podcasting that way. <laughs> you know, many of us start a show because we just kind of want to have conversations or there are many, many motivations for starting a podcast. But I think if one of your goals is to cultivate community and grow an audience around your show, paying attention to those things that, that you can't find other shows on can be really helpful along the way, um, especially if you have something like a search term that you're like, people are definitely searching ADHD. Okay. Taking off my podcast studio founder hat, because that's <laughs> not what this is about. But if anyone wanted some free podcast advice, I think the way that you did this was great. And I am not surprised to hear about the success that you've had, both from stepping into the space that you wanted more conversations around and from the strength of your episodes, how compellingly you weave together all these sources of information and shared experience and all of that as well. So it's not just finding an empty niche, but also like being a great podcaster. And you had all this experience from your other show. And being able to actually say something. I know that this sounds kind of obvious, but like as a general you know, taking a step back and looking at marketing in general, I've, I've said this to you before, like I have no interest in sending a weekly newsletter for no reason. I have no interest in just like, and the, I, I get these newsletters, so I, I get it. But people being like, oh, this is the thing that happened to me this week and I'm going to weave it into a story and then there's going to be a, you know, a moral at the end. And this is what I learned. And I'm just like, this feels like a children's book to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> there doesn't have to be a moral to every story. I'm not trying to make fun of anybody in particular, but I just don't want to do that. And that's another thing I want to say as an ADHD business owner is a lot of what matters to me is, I mean, besides just my values broadly, I just don't want to do shit that I don't want to do. And if I don't want to do a particular thing in my business, I just don't do it. And so for me, taking this big step away from a lot of social media and deleting some of my accounts is just, I don't want to. And you don't need a bigger reason than that. And I don't think it needs to be like a huge, you know, kind of like in a relationship, you can leave because you want to. That can be it, which is also an important piece of advice, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, also. <laughs> there are many reasons to step away or to quit social media or anything else you might be doing in your business and your marketing and your life, but your desire to do so is enough of a reason. To kind of wrap up our conversation, I wanted to 
just get a little visionary together and talk about online community spaces that are not on social media. So we've already talked in this conversation about the ways that online community is really important for disabled and neurodivergent and ADHD folks because it becomes a place where you can meet others who share your lived experience and who may not be a part of your immediate local community. But we've also talked a lot about how social media can actually just like really negatively impact our mental health, our lived experience, and all of these things. So I love to hear like, as you are stepping away from some of your social media platforms, and continuing to not do things you don't want to do, what are some ways that you're creating online community to kind of suit your brain and ways we can imagine other folks could do the same? Yeah. So one of the things I did that was really helpful was I kind of sat down with a list of all the spaces I'm on digitally, including, you know, all the different chat platforms and stuff that I have for various different groups and basically what's working and what's not working. So just kind of evaluating what do I like about this? What do I not like about this? And then also separately from what exists, just journaling about what do I want? What am I looking for? What's my ideal? Because I think we're so used to just kind of taking the tools that are handed to us that it's easy to be like, well, this is the best option right now. And it's like, yeah, but what are your needs and what would actually meet your needs? First of all, because there might actually be a tool that there aren't that many people on, but that technically does do that thing. And that's, and then I'll just ask about that. I'll start asking people like, Hey, do you know, or, you know, ask my techie friends, like, do you know of something that would do these things? I did that around productivity software and, you know, like to do's and stuff. Cause my brain hates most of those things. So I was like, okay, these are the things I need and I need it to not be visually cluttered and all this stuff. And I actually found something through that, through asking people. So, you know, for example, 2016, when I left Facebook originally, I started a mighty networks and that was back when it was free So technically that is social media like, but you're kind of creating your own. I was inviting people in. So I don't know, I had hundred something people in there. So it was a little bit more of that kind of smaller, you could actually feel like it was a community in a way. And I was active in there for a while. I've been a part of discord groups. Patreon has a social component because people can like comment and chat and, you know, start threads on them. But again, it's these kind of like individual themed communities. So there are things like that that exist. I'm also on just group chats, again, a topic or, you know, these things. I think what I would sort of vision and imagine and want would be something where people had a lot of control over what they were seeing and how they were interacting and how other people can sort of reach and notify them. There might be ways in which you would want to be able to connect with strangers but not just want to be getting, you know, the messages I get on Facebook of people being like, I like your business. Would you like to spend (laughs) (laughs) $5,000? Yeah. Thanks. So, so helpful. (laughs) So, you know, I, I don't know that something like that exists in sort of a robust, large way with a huge audience, but I think having bespoke spaces that meet some of your needs actually feels a lot better for my brain, at least, than having something that has like thousands of options, but is also just a lot of mental clutter. Mm-hmm. I have also, since leaving social media, joined many Discord channels or Discord servers. I've joined many Patreons. I've been in a lot of different, even some people's like Substack newsletters are really trying to create community through comment threads and different things. But I agree with you. It's that sort of shared affinity around a particular topic 
And then also tapping into like kind of what is the size that works for your brain, which you've mentioned. Are you someone who really, once it gets past four people, I have to tap out? Or you're like, if it's less than a thousand people, there's not enough happening for me to maintain interest, right? It can be wherever. There's no like set number that needs to work for anyone, but knowing what you prefer. And that can be different based on the topic. It can be different based on the type of relationship you want. It can be different around your support needs in that area. But I loved what you shared just about taking the time to assess the digital spaces you're already a part of. And then separate from that journaling around like, what do you desire? And from there, similar to our conversation about podcasting, if what you desire doesn't exist, you could step into creating it if you so chose. Because I really do believe maybe this is, maybe it's naive of me, but probably not. But I think that like, if it's something you want, there are other people who also want it. And we just have to create these things and and find them, find those people, or they'll find us once we kind of put ourselves out there with having made it. Totally. And there are app developers email me at least once a week. So I know there are people out there ready to make an app. (laughs) Always. Oh my gosh. So many app developers. They are ready and waiting. Well, one of the spaces you're creating is obviously the ADHD Flourishing podcast, but I know you're also developing sort of more community-oriented space somewhat associated with the show called Like Your Brain. So could you tell us a little bit about that and how listeners could potentially connect with you there if they'd like? Yeah. So this came out of actually work I did with Amelia. I developed a program called Love Your Brain, which is more like intensive you know, coaching, working on a project. And it's this very like intensive five-month program. Did that twice this year. Next year, I'll do it once. And a lot of people were saying, hey, I am not ready for Love Your Brain, but I want to do something with you. And they wanted a space where essentially they could grow, but have it be kind of chill. And I was like, yeah, I don't really have anything like that. And there's not a lot like that out there, right? Like it's kind of like you do a program because you have a goal and you're like working really hard and you focus a lot. And I wanted something that was almost the opposite of that, like a phrase I really love. And I can't remember exactly how it was put, but it was basically like, if plants are given what they need, they grow and that's it. Like that's, it's in the nature of nature to grow if it, you know, if it gets water, sunlight and good soil. And that's kind of what I'm looking to create is the conditions for growth without it being super driven or goal oriented. So it's actually going to be a space on Patreon. So there's a community aspect to that, but it'll still be a closed group. We're going to have calls during the month and really just a focus on gentle co-working being witnessed maybe finding an accountability buddy in there who has the same neurodivergences you have so that you can give each other the exact kind of support that you want. I've just been thinking about that some of what I was offering in coaching is essentially something that an accountability buddy can offer you for free. And I was like, I would like to focus on, on the coaching side, the kind of deep dive intense stuff that you can't find anywhere else. And then let you kind of get that in between accountability stuff for free because you can. And I'm wanting to create more spaces like that because I, I feel like there's a lot of gatekeeping around growth, essentially. It's like you have to pay for it and like be in these spaces. And I'm like, I mean, technically you will pay for this because there'll be a sliding scale, but it's going to be the lowest tier I'm thinking is $7. And if you don't have $7 a month, great. This supports the podcast, which is free, which you can listen to for free. So <laughs> that's the intention is just kind of creating the conditions for growth without being so kind of hard driving. So it's a space you could just be in. I'm imagining like, ideally you can be in there for a year and just kind of hang out and get some support and see what happens and make some friends. And yeah, I'm really excited because a lot of my spaces have been so 
goal oriented. And this is not that it's just hanging out <laughs> and, and, you know, there'll be some knowledge and some, you know, stuff along the way I'll, I'll put information in there, but I really want to focus on integration and implementation more than just throwing more information at you. Cause we all have enough of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm excited for this to exist and listeners head to the show notes. All the information will be there. The podcast will be linked like your brain will be linked. And I just really hope that this episode helps you like and love your brain. And like Mattia said earlier, it doesn't really matter to us whether you are ADHD, get diagnosed in that way, choose to identify in that way or not. What's most important here is that you're finding ways to support your unique, specific to you brain. And I just think that we have so much to learn from Mattia and from the ADHD community about the ways that they've adapted their work to their life and to their brain. And so Mattia, I'm so grateful you joined me today. Is there any final things you want to share with listeners? There is nothing wrong with you except for that one thing that is totally wrong with you that probably you can get medicated for. (laughs) (laughs) Wise, wise words. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me. And until next time, friends, we will see you off the grid. Thanks again for listening. I hope some of that was useful and relevant to you. And again, the link to Like Your Brain, if you want to check that out, is in the show notes. I also link to Amelia's Off the Grid podcast and website if you want to check out her work. She is really, really awesome. I've worked with her in a number of ways. And again, if you're listening to this and you want to hop into the welcome call either today or on Monday, part of what we're doing in these welcome calls is I'm just hearing what people want from this space. For example, co-working, coaching, right? There's so many things we could be doing to support you. And I just want to make sure that the things I'm setting up are both the type of things people are looking for and at a time that works for them. So the people who hop into like your brain in the next month-ish, so September, October, 2023, they're the people who are really going to be helping shape what it becomes for at least the next while. But of course, if you're hearing this later, if you join later, I still want to hear your opinions and we will still be taking them into account. Thanks again and have a great weekend.